Welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farrand and I'm on the I'm the owner of the company Horns of Odin. And today I'm joined by Felix Luma. Felix, uh, first of all, you maybe have the best name of anyone that's ever joined. I love the name Felix. I just, oh. <laughs> it's, I, I love it. It's just, it's just a great name. You don't, I think over here anyway, you don't hear it very often. I don't know how popular it is in Germany. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. It is, you know, out there. I know at least one other Felix, but I also kind of like it because um, the other name that my parents would have likely decided on was Lucas. And I don't oh. think that I would have been a good Lucas. I like my name very much. <laughs> yeah, no, Felix is, it suits you. It's different. Like Thank it's, you. It's certainly not one you hear every day. I don't Thank think you. I could have rocked Felix. I don't, I don't think I would have suited it, but. Ah, uh, you know. Yeah, I'll just stick with stick with Daniel. It works. Stick, yeah, it's an, it's a great name as well. Yeah, you have to say that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean really. <laughs> no, it is. I, I I do like it. I do like it. Um, except I always get asked the question, which one do you prefer, Dan, Danny, or Daniel? And I just I'm just like I don't care. I think I, some people I guess have preference. I'm saying I'm not bothered. Yeah, I mean um, for me. There is no really like like a shortening or something. It's always been Felix. Mm-hmm. But um, when I moved to Iceland, they are very fond of, you know, all these kinds of niceties with names, right? You have, for instance, uh, Sigurd becomes Siggi, right? Mm-hmm. Haukon becomes Konni. Jón becomes Nonni. So they are very quick in getting, you know, these kind of cute names for your mm-hmm. personal given names. And um, there, there are some names which it doesn't really fit. For instance, Bjartur uh, would be one, right? And and Felix, I thought, would have been another one where it is somewhere between, you know, not being long enough to be shortened, yeah. but also not too short to be elongated, like with Jon, who becomes Nani, as I said. Um, but there are some Icelanders who call me Felle, oh, which okay. is also a short form for Fjellai, which means like colleague, pal so i kind of oh, like it it kind of it kind of works it works in two ways it works in two ways exactly and that's why i like it and um again I, you can also refer to me as felly i respond to that as well <laughs> dan i'm, I'm still dan's dan's a, dan's a good one dan's all right <laughs> no i yeah i i don't mind that at all i have it's, it's funny i have certain people call me different variations and i, I know straight mm. away like how to respond depending yeah, exactly. on Yeah, exactly. At times it gets too formal, right? Because when mm-hmm. people address me, sometimes at Felix, it's like, what have I done? Yeah. What have I done wrong? Let's say, exactly. That's <laughs> usually when people call me Daniel, it's like, oh. yeah. did they find the thing that I broke? Oh, no. Yeah. What have you, what have you found out? It's like, did my mom find that I replaced the wine with water when I was 14? <laughs> <laughs> Which is a true story. I did do that. I, uh, um, really? Yeah, I only did it once. We used to have this little wine cabinet in the kitchen and there's a bottle of wine. I'm sure it wasn't. I I didn't grow up from money. So I'm sure the wine was very, it was just a basic cheap bottle of wine, but it was corked and had like Mm. this little paper tape that went over the top of the cork. So I like got a hairdryer and warmed up the glue to take the the little paper thing off and got the cork out, (laughs) drank the wine. Filled the fill it back up with water and somehow managed to get the cork back in there, put the paper back on, put it back in. And I don't know whether they ever found out it was never mentioned to me, but maybe they never drank it. It was just a, a display bottle of wine, maybe. Yeah. Well, you know, a prime example of resourcefulness there. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't I wouldn't have been able to pull this off. 
No, no maybe my oldest. Maybe my oldest sister had done it before me, and I just drank water down wine already. That might be. It could have been that. Okay, Felix, uh, let the people know kind of maybe who you are, what what you do, what you specialize in, what we're going to talk about. Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, my name is, as Dennis introduced me already, it's like uh, Felix. Um, I have a PhD in Old Nordic Religion and Belief from the University of Iceland. Um, this is also where I am currently situated, uh, although it doesn't look like much, but I'm in Iceland. Um, and um, I started studying in Germany and um, with the University of Göttingen. It was like a two-subject bachelor in Scandinavian Studies and History, although I wrote my BA thesis in Scandinavian Studies. Um, on a story which is part of the topic that we are talking about, which is Evain or Even Saga in that instance. And um, then I had an exchange year, Erasmus, here in Iceland. And uh, yeah, kind of never left really. Um, <laughs> went on to study Old Nordic Religion and Belief as a master's with Terry Gunnell and mm. then my PhD. And um, yeah, other than that, that is basically what I specialize in, Old Nordic Religion and Belief. I am teaching the course at the university as well on Old Nordic mm -hmm. Religion and Belief. So Yeah, you yeah. said you said before that you're kind of in the in the role of not replacing Terry, but teaching his his classes, am I right? Or kind of yeah. in that transition phase. Yeah, right. The the I think the appropriate term to use would be like an external expert, right? So I'm not affiliated with the university per se, but I'm brought in to teach that class. Oh, okay. Okay. So that has to be, like I say, that has to be quite terrifying because Terry Gunnell is one of the, the kind of legends of this, yeah. this yeah. whole kind of topic is one you know there is there's a few names that that stand out you obviously have terry gunnell people, neil price jackson crawford they're just names who have kind of transcended maybe a little more into popular people or the, or the average layperson would maybe pick up on their names right that is why i think is kind of interesting that i come from a german background and um especially in the bachelors you read a lot of german scholarship you're not that readily or that much exposed to um, things written in Scandinavian or in English, or at least I personally wasn't. So when I came here and I started studying um, and did my master's under the auspice of Terry, as I said, um, people were like, oh, with, with, with whom are you doing your master's? And I was like, yeah, you know, with Terry Gunnell. People were like, oh, with, with Terry Gunnell? You are a student <laughs> of Terry Gunnell's. And I'm like, maybe I should do some research on who that is that I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, who's, who's supervising me. And then it dawned on me. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, I think it helped a bit that I had this very naive perception. It's like, oh, it's just like Terry, right? And yeah. um, I got to know him as, as Terry and not as the Terry Gunnell that everybody's referring to. But, but to yeah, it, Terry and not Mr. Gunnell. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think, I think that, that helped. Quite a lot in that instance, yes. Yeah, um, but sure, large boots to fill. Obviously, so far I've been very happy to um, not have been thrown to the wolves in a sense alone. <laughs> I've always had a colleague, but that might change now with twenty twenty four. So that's it's exciting. Yeah, bottom mm -hmm. up your shirt, and that's uh, it. I know you. You are very. I think we spoke about this before. You are very smartly yeah. dressed, which is appreciated. Yeah. 
<laughs> I, 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 I felt the need. I'm oh, sorry if I overdress. No, no, absolutely not. Never, never apologize. Like I say, I maybe I need to take a leaf out of your book next year. No. Ne- next week, I might come in a button down shirt and tie as well. <laughs> oh, no. What have I done? <laughs> No, no, <laughs> you have done nothing. No, I, I don't think I, I wear them at only certain occasions. I'm, uh, but I like that. I, I like the. I don't know. Cause do you, do you do you wear like a, a a shirt for teaching on a on a daily basis? Uh, not really. I mean, I I just you know a sweater at times. Other times, I'm also there. You know, in a, in a shirt and a tie. It it, it depends. Yeah. It's not really you know. Too uh, formal at times. Yeah, because I think uh, obviously I, I have a job where I I get dusty. I, I create make drinking horns for a living. So you know I I only wear a suit and a shirt and tie at special occasions. It's it's a very nice thing for me. It's different. I get to dress up. Whereas you know when people wear them day in day out for their the mm. day job, I think maybe loses that kind of charm when you do get to maybe get a little bit more formal. Yeah, I would, I would reckon it certainly does. Yes. So that's why I also I sprinkle it in, in times to feel, you know, like extra fancy, extra petty, but. Um. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the topic we're going to talk about right. today, I, I'm not going to try and pronounce it. So I will let you do it. Let you do it justice. Right. Uh, it would be the Rittarasugur or, you know, chivalric romances, um, sagas of knights, if you want to be verbatim. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, more precisely, that would be then the translated literature, because there are, depending on how you want to categorize things, like two kind of different um, saga corpora in a way. Okay. Okay. So, I, I, like, I feel like I've been saying this a lot on the podcast recently, that I like when I get topics that I know nothing about. And this is <laughs> certainly one that I never even heard of until we we booked this and I got my little sheet through to say what we were talking about. I was like, oh, what are, what are these? What are these? Yeah, um, it's kind of um, a, a saga corpus, if you like, um, trying to tiptoe around the word genre here. Um, okay. That covers, again, depending on what, narratives you want to include, but maybe we can talk about that later down the line. Um, Athurian material and um, continental, obviously. So for the most part, it will be um, translated, adapted, redacted, you know, Um, works from old French, mostly. But again, depending on how broad you want to cast your net, you could also um, take some English or Middle High German narratives in there. Mm-hmm. But then again, it, 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 is, it is very fluid, right? Um, it is very complicated, <laughs> I think, as, as you I mean, like. It's not that easy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, pretty much everything is when whatever we talk about on here, it's always... Complicated. I mean, are there any characteristics that just make? I'm going to call them night sagas. Yeah, night sagas. Is there are there kind of like any structural bullet points that like they have to hit this these points to be to be classified? Well, I mean, yeah, to a certain extent, obviously they're translated nature. 
um, and obviously to another extent, um, the material that they are dealing with. And um, again, that would be the translated Tatarasuj, um, because later on, when you are, you know, like the 13th, 14th century, you get a kind of type of literature, which is called in Old Icelandic Lisur, which is kind of nice that we finally have, you know, one of these terms that define some sagas as Lisur, which are um, lying sagas. The German term would be Märchensagas. Um, the English term would be indigenous Ritterasugur. So there you get it, right? Um, they are of an Icelandic provenance. And um, they are, in a sense, influenced or they um, emerge through influences, basically um, a convergence of Fortatasur, the legendary sagas, and the Ritterasur. So you have like two different kinds of sagas, types of sagas that converge and spawn a new kind of saga literature, which is obviously very interesting. Not really mm -hmm. my forte. So I try to keep it with the translated Ritterasur in this podcast, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, but, but yeah, that would be one of these things, right? They are translated in nature. Mm -hmm. The material is um, something that you would call like meta of France, meta of Britain, continental. So when you say translated, it means, does that just mean that there is an original story and then it's been translated into Icelandic or Old Norse? Yes, that would be the short answer. Okay. The long answer is, again, it is a bit more complicated mm -hmm. because um, obviously translation is not something that is very easy um, because you have to, to think about it. Do I, if I translate, do I translate sense or do I translate verbatim? How much does the translator, you know, want to impact on the narrative? How much liberty does he take? Mm -hmm. Um and obviously something when it comes to, say, concepts that are not inherently understood in the source, in, in the target culture that you're translating into, how do you go about it, right? Do you just leave it as it is? Do you try to, in a sense, adapt it into your culture so that the readers understand what it is? Or do you just like leave it as is and explain what it is? You know, there are certain um, types of translations that can go on. Mm -hmm. So when these sagas were translated, obviously you have an old French source material. Okay. Yeah. And then they obviously get translated depending on how early they are, either into Norwegian and then into Icelandic or straight into Old Icelandic. That might obviously be a reason that we do not have any Norwegian intermediary left. Unfortunately, we have very few Norwegian manuscripts of these sagas surviving. Mm -hmm. um, but are they are they all written? Because obviously we have a big long sending like oral uh, yeah like oral tradition for, for sagas are they do they move orally and then written or are they taken from a written source originally and then to a written source does that make sense 
Um, yeah, um, in a sense, you the the old French material is certainly written in in rhyme form, right? Okay. So it is in a sense intended to be remembered and and uh, maybe even performed orally, right? There is something yeah. happening there. You know, the the rhyme schematics obviously support oral mm-hmm. um, transportation of matter. When it comes to the sagas, obviously one major thing that they alter when they are translating is they do away with the rhyme and they form okay. it into prose. Oh, okay. okay. That does not necessarily mean that there is no, you know, oral transmission beforehand because um, somehow they, these, these stories need to travel. Right, mm-hmm. people need to get to know of these stories and say, like, okay, this is a good story. So I think people might want to read about it and mm-hmm. hear about it. And um, you, you kind of, kind of cheeky touched into a, a different kind of aspect, right? What are they for? What is their intent, right? Mm-hmm. Because there is a lot of work that goes on when you have things translated. You need somebody who speaks or understands the languages, who can write, and obviously who knows these these manuscripts. Mm-hmm. And um, then you are left with the questions like, why are you translating yeah, this that, material? Like I say, there has to be some purpose, I guess, whether it's right, for, right. for entertainment or maybe just for like a moral message. But it seems like a, a big effort to to translate them. Um, particularly if they're, if, I don't know. Yeah, if they're not going to be, you said about the 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 rhyme aspect of the original one mm. would be would tend to mean that it would be performed. So if they're if they're put into prose, does that usually mean that they wouldn't be performed and they would just be read? Um, that's never a question I've really thought of before. But one aspect, at least in Iceland, that we have are the so-called kvöldvökur, the evening wakes where, you know, during winter, dreaded winter, you have a lot of time indoors because A, it's very cold outside and B, you do not have that many daylight hours, right? Mm -hmm. So what you would do then is while, um, I don't know, you repair your fishing net or you, um, the women might be doing some, some, some weaving or what have you, um, you get people that are reading. Mm-hmm. But they are not reading to themselves only. Obviously, they would read out aloud. Okay. And these quiltworkers are a tradition that goes on that continues into the 19th, maybe even the early 20th century. So mm-hmm. I don't see why this might not have been the case then. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, yeah. As you thinking, I guess we spoke about this um, a lot last week about how we kind of forget the human aspect of of these peoples because you know and we're talking about 800 years ago and in, in, in this case and you just forget like i say you forget to humanize them and that's gonna be thinking how you'd have different families maybe reading these these stories and some some of the let's be stereotypical and say like the dad's reading the story and maybe you you sometimes you get a fun dad and he's gonna perform it and he's gonna he's gonna really kind of entertain everybody. But sometimes you may have somebody who doesn't do that, and they just kind of read it word for word. Yeah, and, and it, I I I could just I don't know why I could just imagine that that kind of happening. 
Yeah, sure. And I mean, um, again, coming back to the to the translation part, right? How much liberty do you take with the translations? There are certain ideas, certain notions that you see that are either misunderstood or that do not really, you know, cling on in a sense because the the environment isn't really there to support these ideas, right? Mm -hmm. One of these ideas would be, um, I mean, if you think about Arthurian literature, right? You know King Arthur, you might know some of his knights, right? Um, But one of the key defining things that they're having is their own table. Yeah. Now... Sitting order in, in a hall structure, you know, in, in a king setting or in a yard setting, or maybe even in, a, in Iceland, you know, with the Goldar, with the um, chieftains there, where you sit and how close you sit to the chieftain or to the ruler is very important. So obviously the idea of a round table doesn't really make sense. You know, not, not everybody is equal. So why do you want to... You know, translate this kind of idea. And in fact, the round table is, I think, mentioned once in the entire corpus. So it's just like, you know, these oh, are really? the things that do not, yeah, that doesn't catch on. It is, it is such a famous part of, of it, just have exactly. a, a round table. But I, it, all, it also makes sense to me because you see these big long tables and the the, the king or the, the chiefs and sits at the head. And then like you say the, the most important sit closest. But if, if you're We've all been out for dinner with friends. And if you're like three people down, then you may as well just be sat with another group of people. You're talking to the people in front of you and next to you. And you, that, you're just not talking to the people further down. Whereas obviously if you have a round table, everybody's looking at each other mm. and it's more inclusive and you kind of can maybe strategize better. Right, but, but with regard to the three nights, it's obviously this, everybody is equal. Mm-hmm. But then you have the king who is as equal, but still a bit more equal, right? Yeah. It's kind of this dichotomy where everybody's equal, but not everybody is as equal as everybody assumes they are. Yeah. yeah. You know, you have, a, you have a better equal and a lesser better equal mm. in a sense. Yeah, the king has his favorites. Yeah, right. And, and, and this is, again, something that socially would not have really resonated, I would think. Mm-hmm. And another thing would be castles. Have okay. you ever been to, to Scandinavia? Yes, yes. Yes. Have you seen the, the enormous castles, right? Huge. <laughs> right? Yeah, you I don't, mean, they don't really have the like castles, do. I should add. Yeah, exactly. They, they don't do castles as you do. Or even we Germans did, right? So yeah, when yeah, you, re- you guys have a lot of castles. <laughs> yeah, we have. I mean, even my hometown of 10,000 people has a castle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it is something that gets translated. So the word castali for castle or chastel, it is there and it gets used. But the way in which they describe for the most part is like a longhouse. Okay. When you really read it and, and how it is described, yes, okay, maybe they have a garden around it um, and, and maybe they have some marble stepping stones in front of it. But really you get the idea it is just like a larger longhouse. In a sense. Mm-hmm. And um, again, this is something that socially historically, is something that we also do not really see. I mean, um, for, for my PhD writing about this, um, I've, I've read a publication. I'm, you know, working from memory here. So, so my memory might be a bit off. So apologies for any in, inaccuracies here. Um, but Sweden 
for instance, in the 13th century, when these sagas get translated initially, in a sense, um, if they had castles akin to what you would understand as a castle, something like that would most likely be, a, you know, be a wooden structure mm-hmm. that then would last for roughly half a century, depending on the maintenance, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then they would just rebuild it or repair it or just give it up. So obviously these huge stone buildings is something that doesn't really work. That's I've never really thought of it in that way as would they would they know would it be typical knowledge of like what a castle is in in what we know? Because obviously you know, I'm a Brit, you're German and we know castles. We grew up around castles. There are castles everywhere. And most of them started life as wooden castles and then at some point became stone. But we just just know what a castle is. Now, I didn't think of it if you maybe if you grew up in, in Iceland or Norway, maybe you just would would they know like, if they see castle, would they go, Oh, that's a stone because i've never seen one so would exactly. they know what it is exactly and that is um again back to your one one of your earlier questions right what is the purpose of these things you said entertainment and that is something that has been proposed right these are fun stories you love to read about a knight that you know saves a lion from a dragon and then the lion becomes his tame partner in crime in a sense and they you know reclaim the knight's earlier lost honor and such obviously these are these are fun stories you want to read about them yeah obviously I want to read about a lion, you know, fighting of a dragon. So this is awesome. Mm-hmm. But um, another thing that has been proposed is, for instance, education, right? So I, re- I haven't really touched upon it. Um, there is a Norwegian king called Haukon Haukonason. And um, he was born, I think, in 1204 and descended to the throne in 1217 if my memory serves me correctly, and then I think died in 1263, (laughs) guessing here. (laughs) And um, he was one, um, he was the king who um, either commissioned or at least oversaw some of the first translations of um, this continental material into old Norwegian, as it were. And um, that would be Tristram, you know, maybe the Tristan and Isolt kind of um, narrative thread, you know, where they are, you know, love struck by a love potion and it ultimately goes horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. And we have a saga. Um, this is one of the few instances which is kind of interesting because the saga ends by saying that this saga has been translated at the behest of Haukon Haukonason in 1226. Now, the problem then is that the manuscript, the first complete manuscript that we have is, I think, from the 17th century. So we have like roughly half a millennia of a gap between the first complete saga manuscript. We have some earlier fragments, sure, but the first complete saga manuscript that tells us the 1226 and actually 1226 happening there like 500 years ish give or take mm-hmm. between so how much can we trust this right usually it is taken at you know somewhat of a face value 
because um, the the translator or the compiler quotes with like Brother Robert, like Brother Robert has translated the saga. And um, the name pops up in another saga somewhat later where he has um, ascended, I think, to Bishop. So Mm -hmm. if you think that this was the same because Robert is not, you know, that common of a name um, and it's usually taken to be the same individual, you can roughly gauge, okay, that, that there might be some authenticity to the states. And then you are thinking, okay, if a king has interest in having these translated, is there more than maybe just the fun part of it? Is mm-hmm. it more than just entertainment? Is it maybe more educational, more social? Is it that the, the king might um, provide to his people some kind of literature um, in which they read about a society which he himself wants to model. Okay. So, so like, like a template. Like a, and almost like a, would it be a status thing that he would have these, he can afford to, to have these translated that, that I guess nobody else would have. And also how, I don't know if this, you might want to put a pin in this question and go back to it after, but I was just thinking back to earlier when you said, these would be read how readily mm. available would they actually be because obviously we don't have like a a print impress so how would people have how common would copies of it be that depends with the narratives obviously um we have narratives that only survive in five manuscripts then again we have narratives that survive in over 30 35 manuscripts so there's a huge or even more even. So, so there's a huge range in popularity. If, if the surviving manuscripts tell you something about maybe the extant manuscripts at one point in time, and you say, okay, we have 35 odd surviving manuscripts, you know, add in some, some number of manuscripts that we lost, that we do not know about, that was a very popular saga. Mm-hmm. Then again, obviously, it doesn't mean that a saga that we only have five manuscripts or seven or 13 manuscripts surviving from necessarily was less popular. It might just be very unfortunate happenstance of history that, you know, 80 manuscripts just didn't survive, kind of unlikely, but, Mm -hmm. you know, still. Um, So certain sagas, very popular. Yes, very popular. Um, when when you say that, 35 feels like a lot yeah just in a sense of the obviously the population i assume these these are are they all in iceland um in that in that instance i think it was patalopa saga so that would mostly be in iceland there might be okay. one in Norway, okay. but again i'm i'm talking about the yeah. memory but mm-hmm. um certainly yeah, but it obviously does not mean that they are all from the 13th century, right? Because they are getting copied and okay. bit, you know redacted later on. So you you have manuscripts from the 13th century, 14th, 15th, 16th, oh, okay, 17th right. century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so there's a broad band. We are talking about a couple hundred centuries here, right? And not, okay. not a couple hundred, sorry, couple hundred years. Yeah, yeah. not a hundred centuries. No, no. I mean that would be yeah, that would be something. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, okay. I I was thinking of them all existing at the same time and just being passed around between people and well, I mean, out. They are currently all existing at the same time. So obviously, oh, yeah, I guess, it, I, yeah, 
Yeah, so that point certainly holds true. But, you know, they might have trickled in, you know, throughout the centuries, right? You might start off with one manuscript, obviously, then you have like two, three, then like five or six, and then you mm-hmm. might end up in 10, and 15, and maybe one gets lost. It's, you know, it's, it's always a back and forth. Yeah. In, 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 in that vein, obviously, it is interesting to, to say that although for the most part we have identified the old French templates, or again, you know, English and Middle High German, depending on how, again, broad you want to cast your net, um, none of the extant or the currently existing old French manuscript that we have is the exemplar, like the, the model after which the sagas that survive have been copied. It is a bit unfortunate, obviously. It would, it would be nice to go, I don't know, into the um, National uh, Library of France and be like, you know, this, this is the manuscript that you know, served as a copy. It's like the exemplar, the model after which, you know, I don't know, Walderstochter mm-hmm. uh, had been translated or something like that. That would obviously be great. But we yeah. unfortunately don't have that. Okay, so you just, I guess you just have to assume that it was taken from. Well, I mean, you don't necessarily have to assume in certain instances, it's quite obvious mm-hmm. where the story comes okay. from. Um, but yeah, certainly at, at times it, it, it leaves you wondering, like, what are the intermediary steps? Because obviously, as, as I just told you, it's like you start off with one manuscript, which is called the archetype. And from that one, it gets copied. And then the copy gets copied. And then the copy of the copy gets copied. Mm-hmm. So you're basically left ultimately with a very strange looking family tree, in a sense, of manuscripts. Do they get, and, do they, will they be changed from copy to copy? Or will they be copied word for word? That is a thing. Not always. Not always is it, you know, word by word. Okay. Sometimes things get omitted sometimes things get added certainly um it's not always as slavishly word for word but but it's a, a fairly fairly great job all mm-hmm. of you know everything considered huh. um one thing for instance which is interesting is that um we have a Percival's saga like the saga of percival and that is obviously um, the Holy Grail narrative cycle. And um, the old French author, which we know by name, he is uh, Chrétien, or was rather, obviously he's dead now, uh, <laughs> Chrétien de Troyes, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, he passed away before he finished his um, Le Conte du Graal, as it is called in French, like the, the story of the Grail. Okay. So what the um, old Norse, some you know, translator or compiler, however you want to call it, um, they basically finished the story. <laughs> okay. So, so, so in a sense, you're not left hanging, but, but, but you get a finish to the story, which you otherwise would not have. But obviously this is something then unique to the Old Norse because it's obviously the Old Norse finish to that narrative. Mm-hmm. Also how, very interesting. Sorry. How do they do, they, do they do it justice in the finishing of it? Or does it... Is it very obviously different? Do you get the end of the original and it just kind of changes? 
No, 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 no. I mean, obviously, they they take effort to to blend in and make it as seamless as possible. Sure, but again, um, um with Parsifal Saga, it's very interesting because um, it revolves around the Grail, which is obviously this magical object that um the entire story revolves around, and um, this is again tying back to um, translating and maybe the the social or the teaching aspect of it because they translate obviously the grail and the grail scene um, but they do it in a very interesting way because they call it um, which means like walking refreshment which is very odd which in a sense tells you it's like you have you have this beautiful scene right Parseval is in in room and um, there are a lot of these um, young persons bearing, you know, a sword and then obviously the grail and then the spear and so on and so forth. And, and they move past him without noticing him, without saying a thing, and he's wondering about what this is. And obviously the grail is some sort of drinking vessel, right? And um, it, it is very interesting to see because it is um, born, in a sense, um, carried past Parsevaj, and it is a vessel with some liquid in it. Um, mm. They just went like, oh yeah, that surely works, right? Walking refreshment. Let's go with that. I think that makes sense. <laughs> I, I, yeah, yes, yeah, so I, I do understand what a great is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very maybe interesting. The, maybe, I mean, I feel like I've seen some sort of conspiracy theory somewhere that suggests the Holy Grail is a person. I feel like I've seen that. So maybe they were just taking, maybe they were the early inspiration for that. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, but um, it, it, it just is, is interesting to see when, when you really think about it, how much the, the social aspect of it, you mm-hmm. know, when, when, when you have um, somebody who want these things translated to have, in a sense, a, a blueprint, a blueprint, excuse me, um, that he wants his society to look like, as it were. Yeah. And then you you get like very interesting oddities wrong. It, it is just like, I, I really find this amazing. And um, as we were talking about it before you hit record, um, it shows the, the human aspect of these things, right? Mm-hmm. It brings that so much more to the fore. Mm-hmm. Because um, when you do these translations, you always think about, oh, it's like one guy sitting there um, maybe in a monastery, hunched over the manuscript, um, you know, with candle light flickering, something like that. But but there are so many more persons involved in translating. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, it, you know, it starts off with the commissioner. You know, somebody has to provide you with the funds to do this because this is expensive. You yeah. need the, the raw material, you need the time, you need persons, you know, to feed them and so on and so forth. Um, then you have, depending how many people you need, you know, an X amount of scribes that do the copying. Um, maybe you want your manuscript to be illuminated. So you need somebody who can, <clears throat> who can draw and paint these illuminations in. Um, you, you may have somebody who comes in and um, prepares, <clears throat> excuse me, um, prepares the raw material, right? Because um, you need some material to write on, yeah. which would obviously be parchment, which is cow skin, goat skin, something like that. So this needs to be prepared. Um, 
you need lines and rubrication. So you have that can maybe do the scribe himself, but maybe you have somebody who can do it for you. Then, you know, they would prick in where the rubrics are. They would draw you the lines on the parchment again. So there are so many people involved in, in, in translating these things and um, adapting them. It is, it is uh, very interesting, the, the machinations behind these things. It's not just like not one guy, right? Yeah. Or, or, or he, two guys. It shows the importance of having them translated, or at least the, the need and the want. There's, it's not just frivolous. It's not just because. You know, you, there has to be a reason why, why they want this, because exactly. you wouldn't put that expense into it and... Exactly. Yeah, I mean, when you see when you see things like this, where they are with the illuminations, they they are stunning. They're and they're not easy. It's not easy to do. It takes a lot a lot of time, and I dread to think how many mistakes and errors must have happened. And I, I couldn't do it. I even even not even just the the drawings. The the writing itself is always mm. very had um, elaborate. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it is always a bit unfortunate with the Icelandic manuscripts. They are not as illuminated or not as fanciful as their continental counterparts, right? Mm-hmm. But obviously, we also have very fancy manuscripts. Um, I'm not sure if you can see it, like the, the picture behind me. Yeah, That is one page of uh, Flatea book, which is um, a very, very beautifully illustrated codex. Mm-hmm. At least, you know, judging from what we are usually <laughs> encountering. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, it, it does. It, it really does highlight that, highlight that importance of, of wanting to have that done. Um, okay, so we were, you were talking about Hawkon having having this translated before and, and possibly the reasons. And then I think we got side, I sidetracked us. Um, so yeah, going back to kind of going back to the, the, the reasons as to why maybe he would have had this done, whether it was for, I think you, you touched on the education aspect yeah, um, and the theater. Is there any, anything, any other reasons? I mean, so far, not that I'm aware of. These are usually the, the, the two great theories that are proposed. Either it is fun or it is some kind of cultural, social Mm-hmm. Um, reason to to have these translated um and and there really is no no consensus um in a sense because it it might be both at the same time it yeah. might be either or um it is you know one of these things where you can very good uh, disagree in a scholarly manner <laughs> On these okay. on these kinds yeah. of questions, right? It's like, yeah, but I think it might more socially be something like, you know, there might be he, he might have more social agenda of it. And then he's like, yeah, but maybe the fun part was really that what made him do these things. Yeah, but you know, you can go very good back and forth for all these things. And and this is what I find very interesting with this topic, because um, apart from the translating aspect, it is also this this um question of impetus, as it were, you know, this question why. And um, that we do not really have a great answer to it, in a sense, which makes it very appealing to mm-hmm. to uh, keep on studying this and and discuss this. Yeah, 
find yeah. I, at least at least I find it very appealing when scholarship does not know the answer yet because that would be quite sad because then we couldn't talk about it because we would be definitely sure what the reason was right yeah that i think that's can be said for all of this sort of time period it seems like everything to do with like viking age nordic mythology the saga which is all that it's all so we have like enough information that it makes a fun conversation but not enough that you can give definitive answers and it's just like the, the same thing that comes up time and time again that it just allows for these which is great for me and the, the podcast that we get to have these conversations and go you know what we don't really know we don't yeah. really know yeah. but then the listeners get to kind of speculate on their own ideas because even just in in this brief conversation i've gone I, yeah I, I bet that it's probably just to show off to to be like this is my social standing. Look what I can do. I can bring these fanciful stories from a f- land far away and look how exciting and great I am because that's where, how I think of people. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, it is always uh, great also the thing that you can look at the same evidence and uh, come to different conclusions. Mm-hmm. Because um, again, this this opens up. It's like, yeah, but 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 how do you come to interpret these things? And then you can say, okay, it's like um, what I said initially. You want to read about a knight saving a lion from a dragon. This is just great stories, right? Um, I always, I'm, I'm I'm having to throw a bit shade now on the sagas of Icelanders and particular uh, Njald saga because. The incipit of it is just like, oh yeah, a guy has a son by the same name. He has a son by the same name. He has a son by the same name. He has a mm-hmm. son by the same name. And then suddenly you're 50 pages in and nothing has really happened. Oh yeah. And um, here you you really are left as, oh, oh yeah, by the way, you are at King Arthur's court and some guy is telling a story and suddenly um, some other knight feels insulted and, um, you know, goes on a revenge quest. And it's like, oh straight into the action it's like night it's fanciful maybe it's also a bit exotic because you're not really sure what a castle is and you're not maybe not really sure what a knight is depending mm-hmm. on where you are and what your social standing is right yeah and um i think i think it, it sucks you in in a sense but then again you can also it say almost yeah it could, it could also almost be i guess like a like a fantasy fairy tales type story because uh, i mean a lion fighting a dragon is obviously fantasy anyway but even the things that are that are real if they're not common to your everyday person uh, and most people some people may have traveled and seen a castle but i would imagine most people wouldn't have so then when you hear about these things and these knights dressed in in armor riding on horseback and it's just like this very fancy thing that, that you've never seen before experienced and you hear about it from this other land that maybe your ancestors used to go to and it just had this really nice story i guess certainly certainly and um in a sense it also brings these distant lands closer to you because then you can imagine what they are and when they're in your imagination they are with you in a sense mm-hmm. so it's it's um transformative in another way right because then you can if 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 you are not really sure about what a castle looks like and you 
yeah, it's like a long house, but no, it has these fancy add-ons in a sense. And uh, you might just conjure up a world for your own. And that might be for some people, something that they seek out. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Yeah. And it's because it's in written form as well. Everybody's imagination gets to run wild. You know, it's anybody who's sat and read a book and then watched a movie adaptation of that book always goes, oh, well, the book was better. And that's because yeah. it's because you created the world in your own mind and it's how you see it. And no film adaptation will ever live up to that. And it's kind of probably a similar thing with this, where each person, if they drew what a castle was, if they drew what the mm. knight was and they drew what the dragon looked like, everyone would be individual. And it's kind of this fantastic story. Yeah. Uh, so one question I have is if if we have them writing these stories or, or translating these stories from kind of, I guess, mainly European base and you have like the castles mm-hmm. and the knights and the dragons, do you see them putting, do they, do they keep it as as that? Or is there a temptation to kind of weave in like Scandinavian things as well? Do they like add bits to it, add their own culture into it? Do we see that in like a comparison from the translated one to the original? Um, for, for the most part, these translations are very faithful. Okay. Um, so they stick to, to the text for, for the most part. You know? Because I'd have just written myself in there. I'd be <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> now, this, now this really... Scandinavian looking guy comes along and just By slays the, name the dragon. Of Daniel and slays yeah. the dragon. <laughs> yeah. That would have been epic. Yeah. He just he just comes in and slays the dragon and he's the hero. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. No, 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 unfortunately. Well, well, I mean, not not really unfortunately, but um they do a very, very stellar job at being faithful to their source material. You know, obviously you have instances where they are not as close, but that again might just be that they are copying from a slightly different source than we've currently existed, mm-hmm. right? But um, you certainly see that there are concepts um, in, in um, Old French that are translated that don't really fit in with what you would expect in, in the Scandinavian realm. Um, and it either changes subsequent um the perception of of these beings or um it really doesn't work um and and this is now how we can very smoothly segue into the old nordic religion part of these things um we have for instance in old french we have the fairies fears um beautiful magic um otherworldly female figures mm-hmm. and um there are certain narrative tropes associated with them right um for instance you are a uh, old french knight you are strolling around riding your horse in the countryside and suddenly you see a very beautiful um fanciful young lady standing by a creek near a tree it is very clear that this is a fairy i i I would reckon i would submit that for the old french they would know what this image means and um that's that's so interesting because to even to me now a fairy is like a little 
the, yeah, the little, but, but the very tiny creature. Yeah, but again, this is then something that in your folklore is. Yeah, you know, the British Isles folklore might be a bit different in that regard. Mm-hmm. But you know, with with these, these are female beings, humanoid. They are the same size usually in the narratives as you know your other females that are encountered, and um, the knight would then go on to address the fairy in a very particular way using a very specific set of terms right he would go like oh my love my friend something like that which shows obviously some some intimacy mm-hmm. and again that this being is stood where she is um addressed in a certain way makes it very obvious that you are dealing here with another worldly figure another worldly female figure, a fairy. But then you are reading the, the saga narratives and they are translating this, but it, it feels like kind of not really that the, the sense of this is transported, right? Then they're going suddenly, it's like, oh yeah, um, my lady and, and such. So they try to be as verbatim as they can or as close to the source as they can, but really it, it, it reads kind of odd, because obviously these knights are addressing these female figures in a way different manner that they would address the queen, you know, or mm-hmm. a duchess or something like that. And uh, in a sense, this doesn't work really because um, when you look at old Norse mythology, right, where are female fairies? I mean, I can, I can, I can throw this question to you, or just like open, you know, to to any listeners. Like, where are female fairies? It is like you have the Aulvar, which are usually translated as elves, mm-hmm. and um, there aren't really in the mythology, at least, yeah. female Aulvar. You have like this one, I think, stanza thirteen of Faupnismal, where you have um, this odd reference to female um, elves that are also not near. If, if my memory serves me correctly. But other than that, um, there might be one apotropaic Latin inscription that has Elvas and Elvos, I think from Jutland, also like the 12th or 13th century. Um, but, but really, there is not that much evidence of female Aulvar. Mm-hmm. And um, these very humanoid beings are not translated in that sense. <laughs> And um, you have other references where there's a particular instance of um, a fairy weaving a mantle. It is now Merkel's saga, which is like uh, the saga of the mantle. It's a very um, burlesque comedy kind of narrative where you are at King Arthur's court and suddenly a strange rider appears. And he says that his lady has sent him to King Arthur's court with this beautiful mantle. And nobody has ever seen a fairer mantle than this mantle, of course. And um, the lady sends her best regards and says that uh, whoever um, is the most chest or the most faithful to her lover may obtain the mantle as a reward. And then obviously the mantle is... Um, everybody wants, you know, every female wants um, to have the mantle and then they are all quarreling who wants to be the first, but not really because they are told, but wait, there is um, an enchantment in a sense placed on this mantle that 
if you haven't been faithful to your lover, it will shorten in a very intricate way where you have, you know, given yourself to other lovers in which way you have been unfaithful, right? So in a sense... Well, I bet that room went quiet. so so initially it's like oh dang i want that bling bling mantle and then suddenly it's like maybe i don't want it after all whoever yeah whoever was talking the loudest and then suddenly just went yeah oh yeah you know what actually i i don't really want it exactly and um this mantle is described as being made by a fear by a fairy um under the earth for some time and hence It thus explains the intricacy of the weaving, but also how the enchantment got placed on that mantle. Mm -hmm. And this one, in this instance, for instance, um, they translate the fear as Ulfkorna, which is quite interesting because, again, as I said, there aren't really female Ulvar in the mythological record. And then you're getting... 13th century saga that introduces, in a sense, as it were, female Olvar into the mix, not really heard of before, and um, associated with um, crafting of usually weaving, mm-hmm. which in Old Norse has, has also you know magical connotations, yeah. but usually different. Mm-hmm. I think you are very well aware of this. Um, so, so it's in, in a sense, it is not only, you know, translating these narratives, but obviously there is some cultural exchange happening, which affects belief as well. Mm-hmm. Because again, suddenly you have these mythological beings, which almost exclusively appear as male. And then suddenly you're getting a female counterpart, um, which not really appears prior and you can um or you know in in my phd i've looked at these Ulfkonur, these female olvar i've looked at dwarves because dwarves appear as well as well as giants and these different super and, and magic but that is something different but but these three concepts as it were they are all affected or affected in a sense different you get the emergence of the Ulfkonr, but then you have um, wolves. And um, in the old French material, at least, dwarves appear in two, two and a half-ish kind of roles. One is like a little knight, like Gimli right? Like the Petit Chevalier, it is called in French, um, where you would have, um, yeah, basically a, a nobleman that is dwarvish, small in stature, mm-hmm. and um, is a knight. Yeah. Uh, 1.5-ish might be the retinue, which is then also described as, you know, dwarves, maybe not as dwarf knights, but again, Dwarfs. And the second one is a treacherous, um, how do you say, um, counselor. Yeah. And um, the narratives that have been preserved in the sagas that we have usually do not feature these um, little knights. So there is no 
counterpart. Mm-hmm. So for the most part, my research was then focusing on the counselor, the treacherous counselor. And it is interesting to see that this doesn't really work. Um, yes, you have some treacherous dwarfs, for instance, Rien, I think comes to mind fairly yeah. early on, but that is more, you know, the, the, the Seagut meta, the Völsung meta is more German in a sense. Mm-hmm. And you do not really see that many dwarfs counseling in the old Norse. You have your odd one, but then again, you left to look at the time. When does that appear? Is it prior to the arrival of the translated Ritter or is it after that? But for the most part, the old French does not really have an impact on the picture of the dwarfs in Old Norse, which is kind of interesting because it shows you that apparently you have concepts that are more susceptible to influence or to amalgamation or to um, fertilization from the outside, as it were. Whereas you have other concepts that are almost entirely unaltered. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you, that kind of goes back to the the question that I was wanting to, to ask before and I've just held on to it. And that's this, this idea of, I just assumed probably wrongly. I assume things wrongly all the time that when these were translated, they would almost have a, an overseer maybe who as, as they go through would kind of explain the cultural aspects of, and, and kind of just explain the story to them as rather than just like translating it, translating it word for word would, would mm. kind of explain what these different pieces meant. Like the, the fairies or with dwarves, like they would say that this is what, what they are. And this is kind of what it means to us. And this is why he speaks to her in a certain way. So then they could maybe capture that in the translation or maybe adapt it to, to their own culture. So it made sense, mm. but it seems like that's maybe not the case that it's just like, here's the book. Here's yeah. your, here's your empty pages. Uh, have at it. <laughs> just just, just yeah, have fun yeah. and f- figure it out as you go along, which is kind of not what I expected. No, there, there wouldn't, I wouldn't think that there would be necessarily somebody that would explain it to you in a sense. Um, I, I, maybe I, I if, thought that would be part of the service. You know, you. Yeah, I imagine they because I don't know. I feel like they would be. I, I maybe I've got this all wrong, but I just kind of assumed that they would be the original would be somewhere important, and maybe in like a castle in in France, and mm-hmm. they somebody would come over from Iceland or mm-hmm. Norway, and mm-hmm. they would maybe pay some money or give like a gift for their pleasure of being able to translate this story out of the book. And as part of that service, you would get a little person who translates it, who, who yeah. like explains it for you. There would be like a, um, right. Probably there's, a religious there's... figure there who kind of just let you know what's happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We have like brother Dan, uh, he is, uh, he has booked the five star. Yeah. It's, it's like <laughs> a package. It's a package deal. Yeah. You get like a package deal. And maybe if they, if they bring a shit gift, then you don't get brother Dan who explains it for you, but it's like you're on your own. There you go. But if you, yeah. you bring something good, you get yeah. the little man who helps you understand it. Well, you will, you, you, you inadvertently touched upon a very interesting question. It's like, how did the 
process of translating uh, be initiated, right? Because you can think of, in a sense, like um, various possibilities. One you just explained, right? I go somewhere where the book is and I copy it or translate it mm -hmm. or I do the work that is asked. Yeah. The other thing is, for instance, um, the book is on loan somewhere and you go to somewhere else. This is like, in a sense, like the middle kind of thing. Okay. And uh, another possibility would be the book travels to you. Uh oh, right. See, I, I feel and like these books would be so important. This, this again, it, this is just like yeah, my mindset. Yeah. Like I just assume these books would be yeah. so important. That it's like, well, it's just staying here. We're exactly. Not, we're not lending exactly. this to anybody. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there obviously are scholars that think you travel to the book. There are others that think the book travels to you. Um, I would also be firmly in the former part because in a sense, yeah, if, if you die on your way, you know, if you drown, if you get killed in a robbery or something like that, it is bad luck, tough luck on you, right? Um, but the book is safe. Mm-hmm. And in, in some areas, obviously, the copy that might be in the monastery is the only copy that is available in, you know, that part of the country, maybe even. So obviously, there is some significance to these books. And as you said, like, would you hand that away, especially if you think about either religious uh, works or maybe even legal texts, right? If this is the only copy of a legal text for your county or for your district, are you, are you handing that out? Are you sending mm -hmm. that away? And it's really? uh, yeah, and I imagine it's not just for a couple of days either. You know, it takes a takes a while to travel back then. Yeah, but also it takes a while to work on this book. Oh, in yeah. which case, it might not be readily accessible to you or to mm -hmm. either party, right? Either it prolongs your stay, in which case maybe your commissioner runs out of funds or doesn't want to pay you anymore because he assumes you're dead. I don't know what have you. Mm -hmm. um, or on the other hand, because it is with you, it cannot be used in its intended function, which might also be a detriment then. So yeah. I would think that you are more expendable than a book. But I, again, I, others might disagree. disagree. Yeah, oh, yeah, I feel like definitely the, the people were more expendable. Because yeah, the, the, I imagine, the especially the, when they're very ornately decorated, mm -hmm. I just can't see them wanting to yep, move sorry. those around. I wouldn't want to. I'd be like, um, no. hey, sorry. I'm, I'm I'm the same. It's like when when people ask me, it's like even today, it's like, can I borrow a book? And it's like, yeah, yeah, okay, you can borrow the book, but really, no. Well, that that's but that's a very good point because you know you have a, you know, we have books. Well, all, all of us have books, and they may cost ten pound, twenty pound, and when somebody asks to borrow, you're still like, I'm not sure because when am I going to see it again? Are you going to bring it back? please make sure you bring it back. And then you're chasing them for it and saying, mm -hmm. where's my book? And five years down the line, you remember, oh shit, so-and-so has still got my book. Yeah. Um, and so when you're talking about one of these books that I assume is, it's not priceless, but it's probably not far off with the amount of work that goes into it. And if it's the only one in a certain area, the difficulties of then getting another copy, it's, it's not easy. Um, yeah. Particularly if somebody's just like, no, I don't want to. I don't want to bring that back. It's my book now. Why? Why would I copy it when I could just keep this one? Yeah, I mean, it's like I haven't, I haven't ever thought about this. It's like, oh yeah, I'm very sorry, your book got lost on the way. It's like, oh yeah, oh, yeah Fed FedEx didn't. I, I'm, I'm very sorry. It's like, oh, 
Oh, uh, yeah. Oops. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, well, sneakily that, just have it, right? Yeah. How would they know? How would they know that? You know, it, people do it today with delivery people all the time. I have a, you know, I have an e-commerce business. I always get people who are just like, oh yeah, it's gone missing. I'm like, but has it? Has yeah. it though? And I'm like, because <laughs> the, the, the little tracking number says that it got there, but the the delivery man will sign for it himself, and it just causes me a headache. But also, even then, you had none of that, and robberies i'm sure well robberies on the road did happen so what's to say that you're just like oh yeah some barbarians came and stole and used it for fire lighters yeah for toilet lecture i don't know it's yeah, just like, like, yeah. sorry yeah like, just... sorry we, we can't yeah like what, what can we do here just but secretly you're just like yeah, i've got the original exactly exactly yeah Hence again, that's why I'm in the former field. Just like you travel, or you have a person, or maybe mm-hmm. even two. I don't know. Travel to where the book is and yeah. have it copied there. It's a much more safer environment for every party involved. Obviously, a part of the traveler, but you know that is then again tough luck. Yeah, and I guess that's that's his his job. You mentioned before that um, sometimes if they run out of money they wouldn't get finished is that why we ended with like part manuscripts where like does that does that happen quite often where there's just like this is taking too long we don't have the funds or maybe i don't know maybe the king dies or changes hands or yeah and they know that was just like me just no that was really just conjecture if oh, I have okay. To be honest, that was me thinking about possibilities that could have happened. Oh, okay. I just wondered whether we had like examples of like a half finished book or manuscript, and we're just like, oh, maybe they just ran out of money. No, I mean, what what we have though is that we have manuscripts in which you know the scribe changes in certain intervals, in which we clearly know for historical facts that you know a person either died or left the country, and then the work was either continued or even finished when they were abroad and unable to work. So obviously we have that. Um, We have also instances where we have scribes that come specifically to write a story. Mm -hmm. So apparently you could also have specialists that specialize in one or two narratives and you know they've copied that so many times they know it by heart that they then are bought in in a mm-hmm. sense to write that mm-hmm. so so there are there are there are various options why you know the 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 hand is changing yeah. why the spelling is different or some sort yes certainly oh. but um, I'm i'm not sure if there's I, I think it would be would be hard to to differentiate, you know, whether or not the money ran out, whether or not the scribe died, something like that. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure if we have instances of that. I really can't have. I don't have any authority on that. I don't yeah, know. yeah. That's fair enough. Um, okay, before we before we wrap up, when I was reading, um, doing a little bit of research prior, I I, I read, and you're gonna you're gonna be able to tell me if this is true or not. <laughs> oh that uh when when these this is this is from wikipedia so it might not be true <laughs> it might not be true don't don't hold me to it that um when these were translated by the scandinavians or into a 
Oh Norse. That when it came to like the love scenes and the uh, the naughtier side of these stories, that they just kind of left them out or didn't put them in, and maybe kind of like dulled down the the excite the exciting aspects of them sometimes. Is is that the case? Because I guess everybody has this idea of like this modern idea of um of the Vikings being all wild. And I know we're talking like after the Viking Age, but people have like this opinion of Scandinavia as like this very kind of um yes, Rocco just woke up. Uh, this this idea of Scandinavia having like this kind of I don't know, just being very free. Uh so then when I was reading that, I was like, oh, that kind of may, maybe people would think that's the opposite of what would happen. To to some extent, um you have um within the within the models right within the old french say the the law of scenes typically follow a certain social conduct right there are certain rules to to this um some stories feature larger law of scenes or more law of scenes in general right but but certainly there are in in a sense rules of engagement right which is all these this this kind of idea of courtly love, amour mm-hmm. courtoise, minne um, would be the Middle High German word. So there is a social order to how you woo and how you love and such, which is again something that might not have you know been so easily transported into the Old Norse. Um, there are certain narratives. For instance, um, the Tristan matter, right, which revolves around, which is basically a love story, right, just gone wrong. Um, and and there are certain scenes, mm-hmm. but not really, you know, that explicit, because again, you have certain social rules, right? So you have uh, Tristan and Isolde, and um, Isolde is married to Tristan's uncle, but because of the love potion, Tristan loves Isolde and Isolde loves Tristan. But unfortunately, Isolde is married to, I think his name is Peter. And um, they, at one point in the narrative, uh, flee into the woods. And um, they are hiding in their little hideout, a hot, you know, very small hut in the, wo- uh, in the woods. And um, what they are doing is they're obviously loving each other, burning desire, but um, they put a sword between themselves when they sleep. And um, so they are found. And um, what the search party reports back to Peter is then obviously, yeah, we found them. Yes, they lay next to each other. There was a sword in the middle, so we think nothing really happened. (laughs) imagine it was that easy yeah imagine it was that easy yes so obviously in good faith the sword obviously indicates that nothing happened and they are nobody can pass the sword exactly nobody can pass the sword and in there in in obviously in fulfilling their courtly love their courtly role they do not transgress and and such Mm -hmm. so obviously you have the same in tristram saga but again because of this courtly love and the courtly rules that are associated with it it you know they they are translating it certainly but it doesn't get that explicit other narratives are way more explicit but um 
in a sense subliminal if 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 you catch my drift okay so we have for instance um partalopa saga which um revolves around the knight partalopi obviously um and his i guess exploits adventures and through you know during the narrative he happens to come across the court of a so-called May Kongur, like um, a female who has no male relatives and thus ascends to the throne, which is, you know, not really how it's supposed to be, um, which is like a narrative trope. And um, the thing is that he can't see her. So she is invisible to him. But um, he, he gets into her castle, or, you know, palace rather, because she becomes the empress of Constantinople, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's this huge castle. It's completely empty. He hears noise. He hears chatter. He hears laughter, everything. But um, nobody's home. Um, but there is like a floating candle. And he follows the candle. And the candle leads him to the bedchamber. And um, he lies, obviously, into the, in, in the bed. And, and suddenly he is like, oh, there is somebody beside me, but he can't really see. And then suddenly he feels like, oh, yeah, this is a female. <laughs> okay. And, um, yeah. yeah. And um, the saga then becomes fairly, you know, um, explicit about not, not really the sexual act, but the, the implied, um, ultimately the implied um, rape, as it were. Okay. Um, so you you get at times it, it it is not written as such. You know, it is more like oh yeah, you know, it's just like I will dominate you or something like that. Mm-hmm. Read between the lines what this means if she doesn't really want to. Okay. Right. Yeah. But um, this is obviously horrendous and d- despicable. But this is, I think, one of the more gruesome things that happen in the Mm -hmm. sagas in the translated sagas Mm -hmm. but again usually they are fairly close to what the french says okay yeah i wasn't expecting that story to take that turn i thought it was gonna be be like a nice romantic he he can't see her but he can feel her and it's gonna be this love story and then he's like no actually he's just a twat (laughs) yeah well i mean it, it it is that love story ultimately surely um apart from that part, um, but he makes her visible at one point in time, which is obviously a taboo. She, she placed him under the taboo and says like, you know, I'm going to wed you, but only if you follow certain rules. And one of the rules were that he is not allowed to see her until, you know, whatever stipulation she puts in place. Um, and he returns back home and um, his uncle is like a bishop. And um, the bishop obviously is like, you have a lover? He can't see you. Devil's work. Here, take this. And uh, in the French, I think he provides him with, I think it was a, I can't recall how the story goes exactly. I think it was a ring that he gives in the old French to Patalopi. And in the old Norse, it suddenly becomes a lantern or the other way around. It is quite odd. Mm-hmm. But, 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 but yeah, yeah. You know, he makes her visible, taboo is broken, but ultimately they you know, get together and, and marry. 
why do I when just just thinking of the human nature of people, why do I feel like she the story is that she's said you can't see me until we get married and like there's we can't do any sexual acts we you can't see me till we get married like that's his and then he's just walked around with his hand in front of his eyes going well i can't see you right now so it doesn't count i'm just gonna do what i want and it feels like that's the story not that he actually can't see her it's like that she's put these things in place and it's been lost maybe to the story to make it a little bit nicer that she's invisible but really it's just his like oh yeah i'm playing the game i can't see you um oh, yeah <laughs> i've got my eyes closed but, yeah, no, 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 no. She is. She's really um, capable of certain magical acts and arts. So she is really invisible. Oh, okay. Sense. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. She is actually invisible. She, she's, she's actually invisible. It's not just like him pretending to not see. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'd like imagine, like him just with his hands over his eyes, just like, oh yeah, I can't <laughs> no. see you. It's all right. We can still, we can still do stuff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, I think I recall. It's like the, the old North says um, that he outwitted her, if I recall correctly. And, oh, uh, is that and what he calls it? Yeah, <laughs> this is what the sorry puts it. Oh yeah, she has been outwitted by yeah by him. <laughs> what a shit way to put it. Yeah. Um, okay, is there anything else we need to know about the night sagas before we we wrap up and let the the patrons ask you some questions? I I think I'm ready for the patrons. I would say right. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Okay, so if for anybody that's listening to the main show right after this, we do a Q and A with the guest. It's patron only. You get that literally just from going over to Patreon forward slash Naughty Mythology Podcast. It starts from £3 a month. You get access to watch the, the shows live. You get all the Q&A episodes we do with every guest, and you get access to the whole back catalogue of all the ones we've done. Um, and you can ask guest questions going forward. Obviously, you can put um, submit your questions prior before the show or watch it live and ask your questions in real time. And there's also story time with Jonas Lorenz on there. There's a bunch of other things please just go check it out. And next week we have um, Eivor, the the singer on, as well as Alexander Draymond from The Last Kingdom. So they're two, two giant guests. So if you want to ask them some questions, you can sign up for the patron and, and get to kind of put, I don't know, I don't know when else you're going to get the chance to ask those two, your, your own questions. So maybe that's a good opportunity to, to do that and it, it will be a fun episode but right now felix is going to answer some questions from the the patrons which in my opinion is a better guest oh. <laughs> <laughs> so as we as we, as we wrap up felix uh, is there anywhere where people can follow you and sometimes people want people to follow them sometimes they don't do you, i don't know how active you are on social media oh yeah i'm i'm terrible at that in fact okay. um, i mean i have i have twitter I think it was on the posters. It is at Viglundur 3 because okay. my cat is called Viglundur. Oh, um, yeah. But other than that, um, I have Academia, an account there. So if you mm -hmm. want to read some of the stuff that I have um, written and published, you can get most of it for free there. Um, I obviously am also on Facebook. Um, Wonderful. Yeah, so, perfect. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. If you want to follow me, it's Daniel underscore Farrand one. It's a somebody still has the other one the audacity i know how dare they how <laughs> dare they uh, no and i i've been posting a lot of a lot of videos of me wandering around cool places talking about the history which has been a lot of fun and obviously just tons about it and follow the podcast on all platforms just at naughty mythology podcast 
But yeah, this is this has been a lot of fun. Like I say I love episodes where I get to learn something that I've never heard of before. And I love talking about stuff that I love. So well, yeah, like, there we go. Win. That's it, exactly. Okay, let's let's wrap this up and go and answer some questions. Right. Yeah, sure. <laughs>